the tiny baby was perfect. Her strong cry, seconds after taking her first breath, was proof. The proud parents inspected their first child. Wide open eyes, full complement of fingers and toes, no odd spots anywhere on the smooth, dark skin, straight arms and legs, feet not twisted, not like the little three-year-old boy who lived in an equally impoverished tiny one-room house in the small town on the beautiful bay. They had seen several children with those same twisted feet in other nearby villages, and of course everyone in their town was acquainted with Pierre Luis. He tried to grow a few banana and platanos on the edge of town. He had lived every one of his 52 years in that village with his twisted foot. It was clearly getting harder every year for him to take care of those plants. His limp was now so painful that he constantly leaned on the bent stick he used for support. His big smile didn't seem to be quite as eager these days. Carrying the bigger stalks of bright yellow bananas was harder than the smaller stalks of green platanos. The neighbors offered to carry the fruit of his labors to the open market. Selling that precious fruit was his life. How else could he purchase the rice, beans, and other items that kept him going? He had no family that could send him even a small amount of money every two or three weeks. They had talked on several occasions about the chance that their baby might be born with one of her feet like that. Living in such a small town, more than two hours' travel from even the nearest hospital meant a lifetime of living with the ugly deformity. As a child, she would not be able to play active games with the other kids. There would be virtually no chance of marriage as she got older and having a family of her own. Who would want to marry a cripple when there were plenty of girls with nice straight feet and legs? They were relieved to see the beauty of their child and thanked God for her perfection. The baby's father loved that first child of his. Her first smiles brought him great happiness. Turning over, sitting up by herself, crawling, and then her first steps increased his pride in this lovely girl of his. Both he and his wife were aware of the need for increased vigilance now that she could walk. They could take her exploring to the driveway and beyond. Beyond was where the danger waited. The small yard had a large mango tree that shaded the roof from the hot sun. The irregular hedge bordered one edge of the property. The toddler wouldn't be able to penetrate those plants with the sharp spines. There was a poor excuse for a fence drooped across the back and the other side of the yard. That wouldn't slow her down much at all. The biggest worry was the front that was open to the street. The bumpy dirt street wouldn't allow for much speed for the passing cars, but occasionally one would pass by going excessively fast. Perhaps alcohol helped him ignore the car's erratic, semi-out-of-control movements. Most of the people in town at least drank beer, sometimes to be sociable, but they also did it to help forget their poverty. 
Some even resorted to the much stronger rum. Nearly as cheap as beer, it, produced, it was produced in the little sugarcane processing plant on the edge of the cane fields between the town and the high hills. Every morning before going off to work in the cane fields, he would remind his wife of the need to carefully watch their beautiful little girl. Getting out in that street just wouldn't be allowed to happen. He enjoyed the outdoor work. His hat with the broad brim shaded his face and part of his upper body from the hot sun as he tended the young plants. Attacking weeds was not easy, but making a game of it made the time pass more quickly. The cane grew quickly, especially with the increasing rains during the summer months. Between his attack hoe and the aggressive growth of the cane, the weeds really didn't have much of a chance. He hummed tunes to himself as he followed the edge of the field. It would only be minutes now before he would again be able to see the bright smile on his daughter's face as she caught sight of him. He was careful to always return to the little house from the side with the fence. Walking down the road might draw her in front of a car as she ran to greet him. She knew where to jump the fence and sprint directly to him. The neighbors didn't mind a bit the happy child running through their property to throw herself at her father. Just seeing her so eager to meet her dad brought smiles to their faces. Her arms around his neck brought him total happiness. The slack time in the cane fields before harvest gave him an opportunity to really enjoy the nearby warm waters of the Caribbean. He put his small, brightly painted, handmade wooden rowboat in the water whenever he could. He had several favorite places to take his fishing nets. One was a small island about a half mile from the beach. A reef broke the surface of the water on two sides of the island. Just outside that reef were where the really good-sized fish could be caught. Those fish provided his little family with tasty food that would help their daughter grow nice and straight. He could even sell extra fish if he was lucky. His meager income from work in the fields wouldn't allow for purchasing chicken, pork, or beef very often. He had a secret desire to catch enough big fish that he could sell. If he could save enough money, he might be able to eventually move his family to a house with a water spigot inside. If things didn't change, he knew what was in store for his little girl when she turned five years old. The closest drinking water was over a mile away. She would already have walked there many hundreds of times with her, with her mother as she carried water for the family. Turning five would bring with it the responsibility of taking an empty one-gallon plastic container with her to the spring, filling it, and then carrying it back home. After several months of this, she would start carrying two containers. A few years later, when she was big enough, the two smaller containers would be replaced with a five-gallon bucket. He knew that it would take her more than an hour to make the round trip, and it would need to be repeated at least twice more every single day. Even the thought of four or five hours of such monotonous daily work angered him. His three sisters had all gone through that for years. It made it so hard to attend school that two of them had stopped going completely after the second grade. Neither could read nor write. Living where they did, it didn't matter too much. They only had to go to the open market to buy a few things for the coming week. 
they would bargain a bit over the price of the beans, corn, or fruit. They only had to know enough that they wouldn't be shortchanged when they paid. His third sister had actually made it through the sixth grade. She could read pretty well and could sign her name. She helped her other sisters with whatever reading was necessary. Oh, how he wanted his little girl to go to school. His father had told him all about his great-grandmother. She was an amazing lady. She had somehow managed to spend all of those hours every day carrying water and going to school as well. She was the smartest student in her grade. She helped the teacher with some of the younger children, explaining things so the students understood was a special gift of hers. By the time she reached the seventh grade, the teacher would leave her in charge of teaching several of the younger classes when she was busy with the older classes. She had caught the attention of a businessman who had come to the village to transact some business with the owners of several sugarcane fields. He offered to take her to the big town nearby of Lakai. She could stay with them and go on to high school. Success there would mean a possibility of attending university in the capital. The family was incredibly proud of this academic heritage. The tragedy of her death while a student at the university was passed on to every family member. The heavy fall rains that flooded the lower-lying parts of the capital city where the university was located led to several dozen drownings that year. Their great-grandmother was one of the victims. He wanted his little girl to have the same chance for an education as her great-grandmother. He wanted to do everything possible to help fulfill that desire for his daughter. Not long after her second birthday, he noticed something not quite right about his little girl's legs. They seemed to be a little bit bowed. When she would stand up, he could see a space between her knees. At first, he didn't worry about it much. He was having too much fun playing with her. He would sometimes carry her on his back and jump up and down and pretend to be a bucking horse. She would giggle and then laugh until the tears would come. And then beg for more. She became more special to him as time passed. He worked hard in the cane fields, especially at harvest time. It was back-breaking work to swing that machete all day long in the hot sun. After cutting the tall canes, they needed to be bundled and loaded in the carts. There was a tractor, but it wasn't running most of the time. That meant the men had to pull the loaded carts by themselves to the tin-roofed, open-sided building for processing. About a dozen men worked in and around the shed. The engines with the big flywheels and belts reaching to the crushers needed a lot of attention. The men standing by the slides were constantly calling for more cane to be fed down to the rollers that squeezed the juice from the stalks. The juice was collected and either stored to make molasses or sent to the other end of the building to be distilled into pure alcohol. The flattened cane stalks needed to be moved away from the rollers and put back in carts and and pulled back outside and emptied on the ground. It was a never-ending cycle of cutting, loading carts, pulling them to the shed, empty carts being brought back to be filled again and again. Lunchtime was a welcome break. To sit in the shade and eat the rice and beans with a bit of chicken gave his tired muscles the rest they needed to go back out for the afternoon. The sweet mango was the perfect finish. Once harvest was finished, the work was much less demanding. He had plenty of time to get back in his boat and catch fish. He also had a lot more time and energy to play with his little girl. She was starting to grow taller as she neared three years old. 
She loved to run outside and play. He would sometimes take her out in a little boat. He always stayed fairly close to shore in case the wind picked up and made waves. Getting his child safely back to shore was always his first priority. That year, a huge storm came directly over their small village. The people in the village were warned by a man in a government truck that the storm was coming. He had a friend help him pull his rowboat up near his house and he tied it to the mango tree. The storm hit their village directly. The waves were the biggest he had ever seen. They completely covered the beach and the water reached almost up to the street when the storm was at its strongest. The wind was frightening. It howled so loud for several hours that no one could hear anyone speak. He held his little girl tightly until her fear passed. Most of the bananas and platanos were knocked to the ground, including those that belonged to Pierre Luis. Several palm trees were completely uprooted. One fell on a house down the street from them. One whole side and half the roof were destroyed. Other towns in their area had also been affected by the hurricane. The rain brought lots of flooding to a town in the hills. He went the day after the storm to help and saw the extent of the damage. Several bodies had already been found and at least ten more people were missing. Their families were frantic as they searched. He did what he could, but it wasn't much. He went back home and worked with Pierre Louise several days to replant his bananas and his platanos. It would be months before he would have any produce to sell. The large mango tree in their yard had been stripped nearly bare of leaves and some smaller branches had blown down. He, along with several other friends, helped the family with the badly damaged house to make repairs. It took several days to get new sideboards and then put the roof back on. He thanked God that their own house wasn't damaged and he and his family were safe. A few months after the hurricane, the village started to get ready to celebrate Mardi Gras. This special festival was a yearly event, and everyone looked forward to it with anticipation. Some of the younger villagers celebrated at other towns as well. The ladies would plan their costumes, and the men got ready to organize the parade. They had to arrange for a rah-rah band to come and provide music since only a couple of the people in his village had musical instruments. There were many bands that were available and it wasn't hard to make the arrangements. He and his wife put a lot of effort into the costume their beautiful little three-year-old girl would wear. They taught her some dance steps to do as she joined everyone in the parade down the street. The band had about a dozen conettes and several different types of drums, each of which made its distinctive sound. Other percussion and rhythm instruments added more in interest. A couple of vehicles had big loudspeakers and they played modern music. Everyone had a good time dancing and enjoying the partying. There was a lot of feasting with barbecues and all kinds of food and drink available. This year there was something that was bothering him that kept him from enjoying Mardi Gras as much as usual. It was clear that his little girl's legs were more bowed now than when he had first noticed it. After the celebrations were over, he decided he was going to see if he could have her examined and find out what might be causing the problem. She was still able to run and play just fine. She never complained of her legs hurting. But he could see the other kids in the village that were the same age, and their legs were straight. The closest hospital was in the big town with the airport nearly two hours away. 
It was a very curvy road along the river through the high hills. Much of the paving was in very bad condition and the brightly painted pickup that they would go in would have to drive very slowly until they reached the main highway. The trip required planning since they had very little money. They would have to take food for lunch. They would probably have to pay something at the hospital and money was scarce. He had talked with some of the other villages who had gone to the city and they had come back with stories of thieves who had stolen things from them. He had misgivings about the trip. He knew all of the people who lived in his village and no one would take things that didn't belong to them. He talked with his wife about the trip and she encouraged him. She was as anxious as her husband to get some answers about their girl's crooked legs. They left very early in the morning. The tap-tap only had two other people in it when they started out. Within less than half an hour, it was full. Several people had bags filled with their produce to sell in another village. Sometimes a passenger would knock on the window to let the driver know to stop so they could get off. The pickup went much faster once it got on the main paved highway. They did go through a number of small villages and passengers would get on if there was room. Staley loved the pretty beaches they passed. Small sailboats were out on the water casting nets. Some of the boats sailed up to the shore as they passed and she could see the men had caught some big fish. She pointed excitedly to show her father. As they got closer to the city, they came upon very wide, flat areas that were filled with sugar cane. These fields were much, much bigger than the fields near their house where her father worked. There were several large machines on the side of one of the fields. A huge building with several big smokestacks surrounded by a high fence was just off the road. More large machines with big rubber tires were inside the fence near the big building. Her daddy told her that building was where all of the sugar cane from these fields was taken to be made into molasses, alcohol, and sugar. A bit later, they came to the outskirts of the city. There seemed to be vehicles everywhere. Most of them were painted pickups like the one she was in. There were also a lot of buses that had a lot more painting on them than the pickups. She saw paintings of men and women and lots of other things. There was a lot of noise, especially from the big trucks. There were people everywhere, more than she had ever imagined. The tap-tap stopped near the center of town and everyone got off. They had to walk now several blocks to reach the hospital. They were directed to the part of the hospital that takes care of children where they got in line and they were given a number. There were lots of kids there with adults. There were newborn babies that were crying and kids with bandages on their arm or leg. One child had a terrible cough. It just wouldn't stop. They had to wait quite a long time before they were called in to see the doctor. After the father explained to the doctor about his daughter's bowed legs, the doctor ordered an x-ray. They had to go down two other hallways and find the place and wait in another line for a while. They finally got the x-rays done and went back. The doctor looked at the x-rays and told the father that the girl's bowed legs weren't as bad as some others he had seen. He didn't have any treatment to recommend to them. He said the bowing would probably stop getting worse in a year or two. If it didn't, then they would have to take her to the capital, to the university hospital, to be taken care of. They left the hospital and found their way back to where the tap-taps were loading their passengers. They found one that would take them back home and got inside. It was a discouragement that nothing could be done for his girl's bowed legs, but he was glad that the legs probably wouldn't get much worse. The trip home was on the same roads, and his little girl fell asleep for much of it. He loved having her fall asleep and rest her head on his chest. 
Life continued for little Staley and her parents in the small town in the bay. Two more children were added to the family by the time she was six years old. Caring for the babies had taken all of her mom's time and lots of Staley's time as well. She was a big help for her mom, of course. Carrying water was the big responsibility. Early in the morning, she would take the two-gallon plastic jugs and head off to the spring in the hills. The small river ran not far from her house, but the water was never clean-looking. There were at least two villages upstream, and she knew that the people used the stream for washing clothes and bathing and other things as well. Her parents had told her to never drink the water from the river. So she walked the mile or more on the well-used trail up to the spring. The water gushed out of the hillside by some rocks and was sparkly and clean. It tasted so sweet after her 45-minute hike that she, knew, that she knew so well. There were other kids on the trail also. <coughs> they all carried the plastic jugs, unless they were older. The bigger kids had a five-gallon pail. She was glad she didn't have to carry the big pail. It looked much harder to carry without banging her legs. Her bowed legs had now gotten bad enough that even the one-gallon jugs would hit against her knees as she walked the trail back home. She preferred to walk by herself so nobody would comment about her legs. Everyone in town knew Staley. They all knew that her father had taken her to the hospital in Lakai and were told that, no, that they couldn't do anything for her there. They also knew that her father had taken her to the voodoo priestess up in the hills. No one had talked about what had happened up there but it was more than six months now since that had happened. Staley's legs were still as bent as ever and even seemed to be getting worse. Staley always left early in the morning to carry water. She needed to return and help her mom with the babies and then get ready for school. She liked putting on the uniform and taking her books down the street to the little school with the hand-hewn wooden benches and the narrow tables. Her teacher was her favorite. She explained the lessons very clearly and made learning fun. Staley always stayed inside and spent the time with her teacher when the other kids went out to play games. She tried to con She couldn't run very fast. Her feet always seemed to get tangled up if she tried, and then the other kids would laugh. She tried to convince herself that it didn't matter. It helped to just avoid these situations as much as possible. She liked all of her classes, and she learned very quickly. She couldn't spend any time after school, though, because she had to hurry home. Two more round trips to the spring in the hills to carry water had to be made. By the time she got back from the second trip, it was time to help her mom prepare food for supper. Staley's deformed legs had caught the attention of one of her neighbors. Liesner had a house not far away. He didn't live there much of the time, he was married to an American lady who had come to their town as a missionary. They had helped build a little Christian church and then would regularly return from the United States to see his family and to visit their home. They often brought donated clothing and other needed things that they gave to the people in town. They had given Staley a very pretty dress that they said had been given to them by a girl her same age who attended their church in Kansas. Leesner had been aware of Staley's badly bowed legs now for two years. They couldn't be covered up, even with long dresses, especially since she walked in such an odd way. He had even asked an orthopedic surgeon who went to his church in Kansas about her condition and if anything could be done. 
The surgeon had told him that she would probably need highly specialized surgery that could only be done successfully in a couple of centers in the United States. On Leesner's next return visit to his home in Haiti, he looked into the possibility of taking Staley to the big university teaching hospital with the medical school in the capital. His calls were met with discouraging answers. There was no orthopedic specialist at the hospital with either the training or the necessary equipment to do surgery for a condition like hers. The only option for treatment would be to take her to the United States. He then made a lot of calls to see if somehow she might be accepted at one of the specialty hospitals that treated children with her condition. The secretaries he talked to were sympathetic, but couldn't give him much help. By the time Staley was eight years old, the condition had worsened even more. She couldn't run at all. The way she walked now was so strange-looking that she had become reluctant to even go outside of the house. She still went to school, but it was getting harder to even do that. Carrying water was a problem for her, too. She could only carry the smaller one-gallon jugs, and sometimes even that was hard. Her legs would get tangled, and she would fall several times on the trail, especially if it had rained and it was slippery. It was impossible for her to carry the five-gallon pails that the other kids her age carried. Her father and mother had come to accept reality. Their beautiful little girl was now badly deformed, and nothing could be done about it. She would live her life in the little town in the little bay with virtually no future. They had seen Pierre-Louis have an increasingly harder time getting around as his deformed leg became more and more painful, and he only had one deformed foot. Their daughter had both legs now so twisted that they were sure that in a matter of time she would hardly be able to walk at all. For the last year or two, they had already shifted their focus to their other children and the hopes they had for them. Mardi Gras that year wasn't a happy time for them. The family went out on the street to watch the parade, but no one got dressed up, and Staley stayed in the house. Not long after her ninth birthday, an event occurred that literally shook the entire town and everyone living there. The earthquake was really strong. For nearly a minute, the earth under them rolled and shook. Cracks appeared in the walls of many buildings, and the roof fell in on one home. Most of the people who lived in the town ran outside when it started, so not many were injured, and no one died. Two people fell down while running and broke their arms. The roof that fell in trapped the older lady who lived there. Her leg was pinned under a large piece of wood. It was several hours before they found her and were able to get her out from under the rubble. By the time she was rescued, her foot looked really bad. She was taken to the hospital in Lakai, where Staley had gone. It took several hours because of the badly damaged roads. Several large buildings in Lakai had been very badly damaged as well. The hospital had large cracks in the walls and the roof sagged some in the back. Everyone was afraid to go inside for fear it might collapse. There had been many noticeable smaller earthquakes in the days after the big one. Dozens of patients were laying on cots under trees in the parking lot of the hospital. A few tents had been set up. Several patients had already had surgery, including three who had had their legs amputated. The emergency surgeries had all been done outside the hospital in the parking lot in a hastily made shelter of tarps. The lady with the crushed foot was placed under a tree. The whole situation was extremely chaotic. The medical staff was overwhelmed. There were very few bottles of IV solutions that remained, and most of the pain-killing drugs were gone as well. By that time, the foot couldn't be saved. She begged the nurses and doctors to not cut off her foot, but it was too late. 
It took two or three days for the people in Staley, this town, little town, to get the news of the terrible damage that had occurred in the capital city of Port-au-Prince. A great many buildings had collapsed, including most of the hospitals. No one had any idea of how many people had died or were still trapped in the rubble. They all had heard of the destruction of their beautiful national palace and how the president had barely escaped with his life. Liesner returned to Staley's town to help his family and the other townspeople. He saw firsthand the damage to so many buildings in the capital as he passed through on his way to his home. It took much longer than the usual six hours to get home. He found his home intact. He had helped build it so it would be solid. There had been smaller earthquakes before this, so he had spent extra money to have a good job done on his house. Before returning home to Haiti, he had heard on the news that many orthopedic surgeons from the United States and other countries had volunteered to help the tens of thousands of injured in Port-au-Prince and other cities. On his first trip back to his home, he checked on the church he had helped build as well as his neighbors and others in town. He found Staley and her family uninjured. Their home was okay. After a few days, he returned back home to Kansas but followed closely the reports on the news. Initial estimates of tens of thousands dead and missing were gradually changed to more than 100,000 as the bodies continued to be discovered in the rubble. The count grew to 200,000 dead and then to more than 300,000. He also heard of ongoing medical work being done in several places by volunteer teams of specialists, including orthopedic surgeons. Doctors Without Borders sent teams from five or six different countries to set up field hospitals in and around Port-au-Prince. The University of Miami had a large field hospital near the airport. Leisner heard that several of these hospitals had orthopedic specialists on a regular basis. He decided to return to Haiti to see if he might find someone at one of these hospitals who might be able to help Staley and her deformed legs. Three months after the disaster, the city had returned to some sort of semblance of normalcy. Street vendors crowded many areas. The buildings that had been destroyed or damaged, including the presidential palace and the huge cathedral in the center of town, were still much like the day after the earthquake. But traffic was able to move to the city. It was congested and very slow going. The vast tent cities housed more than a million people who had lost their homes in the earthquake. He had heard of the increased violence in Port-au-Prince. The national prison had been badly damaged and all 4,700 inmates had escaped. Only a few hundred of them had been recaptured. The rest had found many places to hide in the tent cities and in the slums such as City Soleil and La Saline. Leesner finally made it through the city and continued his journey to his home in Côte de Fer. When he got there, he first talked to Staley's dad about his idea of taking her to the capital to try to find orthopedic help. Since Leesner didn't know for sure that there would be anyone to help, her father didn't think it was a very good idea. Staley's condition had nothing to do with the earthquake, and all of these doctors had come to help people who had been injured. It took a couple of days, but Leesner finally convinced the family that they didn't have anything to lose except the trip back and forth. Leesner set out on the six-hour trip with Staley. After arriving in Port-au-Prince, he decided to try at the University of Miami Field Hospital. Being associated with the U.S. University would increase the chances, he thought. That meant coming into the crowded city from his town, crossing it entirely to the north side near the airport. He certainly didn't want to risk Staley being the victim of violence, but he didn't know of any other option. 
They find, found the hospital and checked in at the orthopedic clinic. The orthopedic surgeon from Los Angeles who examined her just threw up his arms when he saw how deformed his legs were. He told Leesner that they had no equipment nor the training to help her there. His only suggestion was to take her to the Adventist hospital on the south side of the city in Carrefour to see if perhaps they might be able to do something. Back through the badly damaged city they went. Leesner was somewhat comforted by the presence of the white pickups SUVs and trucks with UN painted on the side and with all of the blue helmeted soldiers inside. Perhaps they could make it back to Carrefour and avoid being attacked by criminals. Well, they arrived without incident at the Adventist Hospital and checked in with a young man to the orthopedic clinic. They got there at about 10 in the morning and the number they were given was in the high 30s. They were told that it would be sometime in the afternoon before the orthopedic doctor from the United States would be able to see her. At about 1.30 in the afternoon, I called Staley's number. When she stood up, I was amazed. I've seen a lot of kids with deformed legs before, but never anything like Staley's. And then when I saw her walk, an unbelievable deformity. Leesner told me the story of his little neighbor girl and how he had become more and more concerned as he saw her legs get worse and worse. When I told him that we would be able to straighten her legs, he started to cry. Since they came from so far away, Dr. Nelson made her a priority. Jeannie and I went home to Appleton two days later before her surgery was done, but just a couple of days later, Dr. Nelson did her surgery The therapist got her walking with a walker two days after the surgery. A few days after that, she was able to return home. She had the strange-looking black metal tubes attached to pins on her legs, both above and below her knees, but her legs were straight. I first then saw Staley three months later when we returned with a team from Appleton for a one-week visit to the Adventist Hospital. Staley came for a post-operative check and x-rays. The bones above her knees had healed, and we were able to remove the fixators. The lower ones were left in place for two more months. She was still learning to walk properly with her straight legs when she returned again for x-rays in December. Staley's life and the lives of thousands of others have been changed because of the earthquake. Put yourself in the place of Staley or her parents. Can you imagine how they must feel after so many years of living with such a disfiguring deformity and no hope and now being changed? Her transformation from a crippled child with no hope of help 
can be likened to the sinner living a self-centered life without hope of change. Then, an encounter with Christ leads to the sin and ugliness being taken away. A new creature emerges. Now, a new life is possible through Christ with joy and happiness and all of the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for Staley's story, for her life. I thank you that we were given an opportunity to know about her and to participate in her care. I just want to pray for all of those that have physical problems, especially for the poor Haitians who before have never had an opportunity to have their physical uh, deformities corrected and cared for. But I also want to pray for those with spiritual deformities and not just the Haitians, but for all of us. And I pray that each one of us will allow Christ into our lives and allow the Holy Spirit to enter and take away the deformity and fill us with the fruits of the Spirit.